All right, kids, can I, before you go, kids, who went, who went to vacation Bible school this weekend? Raise your hand if your kid's on your way out if you went to VBS. Was it fun? Did you guys have fun? What you guys, what was your favorite part about VBS? You can say, what was it? Cornhole, playing cornhole outside, water balloons. What did you guys learn at VBS this week? Sally Spruce, the, the skit. What did you guys learn at VBS? About Jesus, you learned Jesus is the light of the world. Follow him, right? Good work. All right, well, head back to meet your teachers for Children's Church. If you're up to second grade, head on back and enjoy yourselves. And if you're third grade or higher, you are here with us in big church. So enjoy yourselves. Settle in. And we are going to hear this morning from Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you brought one. If not, you can use a pew Bible. You can find it in the chair in front of you. And Romans chapter 1 on a pew Bible is on page 883 if you want to use that. So go ahead and turn there. Last week, we looked at Romans 1, 1 through 7, uh, Paul's kind of theological foundation for his entire letter, right? So we looked at the the person of Paul, he's a servant of Jesus, an apostle of Jesus sent out. Looked at the person of Christ, right? That, that Jesus is the fully human son of David and he's the fully divine son of God. We looked at the work of Christ, right? His death for sin, his resurrection from the dead and Paul's mission to go into the world and to make disciples and to teach them to obey Christ. So that was kind of what we, we saw in Romans 1, 1 through 7. This week, he's gonna kind of zoom in on that last point, his mission to go into the world, share the gospel, make disciples, teach people to obey. He's gonna zoom in on that and kind of apply it specifically to his plans to visit the church in, in Rome. Right, the, the, the prevailing sentiment against Paul in the church in Rome, as we're going to see today and next week, is that Paul was afraid to go to Rome. Paul was ashamed of the, of the gospel. He, he was uh, not willing to come to Rome, right? Um, you know, Paul, you're, you're, uh, you might be smart enough to, to hold your own out there uh, in all of those other places, but you're not smart enough, you're not confident enough to come to Rome and preach your gospel here in, in Rome. You're afraid that you'll be exposed as a fraud. You're, you're afraid that your gospel message won't stand up to the intellectual and philosophical scrutiny from our experts here in Rome, the epicenter of all philosophy and, and intellect. And so Paul in verses 8 and following, effectively wants to say, I am coming. My plan is to come. My plan has always been to come. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I haven't not come to Rome yet because I'm afraid. I haven't not come because I'm ashamed, right? I haven't come because God has providentially hindered me from coming, and I'm hoping and praying that, that that will change soon. And so we're going to see a few reasons he's going to walk through as to why Paul longs to go to Rome in verses 8 and following. Right, Verses 8 through 10, he's heard of their reputation of their faith, and he is encouraged by it. Verse 11, he wants to impart a spiritual gift to them and be a blessing to them. Verse 12, uh, he wants uh, they and he to be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. And then verses 13 and following, because Jesus has called him to proclaim the gospel to the world so that people might come to know Christ and be reconciled to God. So those are like the, the, the headline reasons that Paul is going to walk through in these next few verses as to why 
he longs to, to come and visit with Rome. So I'm going to read verses 8 through 15, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to take a look and kind of get, get, uh, get into it. It says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow God's will, uh, that by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some spiritual harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would bless these next few minutes as we study your word. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we can know the hope that you have called us to and see the riches of your glorious gospel and savor the immeasurable greatness of your power. We ask it in the name of, of Jesus. Amen. Okay, verse 8. First, I thank God that through Jesus Christ, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So Paul's first point is, I'm thankful for you, I'm grateful for you, I'm encouraged when I, when I think about you, and the reason why is because I've been hearing stories about your faith, your church, your ministry, stories about people coming to know Christ in your church, people growing in their faith in your church, believers being discipled in your church, people overcoming sin and growing in sanctification and Christ-likeness in your church. And so I'm grateful for the faith of the, of the church in, in Rome, right? Word is, word is getting out, people are starting to talk, and I am encouraged by it. Your, your reputation precedes you. So verse 8 is a commendation to the church in Rome for their faith and their faithfulness that Paul has heard about. <clears throat> verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. And so point one is I'm grateful for you. I'm encouraged by you. I'm thankful for everything that I'm hearing about you. Point two is I, I pray for you persistently, right? Con consistently, faithfully, I'm praying for you. And here's what I'm praying for specifically, asking that somehow, somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So I pray for you, for your faith, for your growth, for your thriving, and I pray that I can succeed in coming, in coming to you. For I long to see you. Verse 11, I long to see you. So again, that's kind of the, the response to the accusation from the people in Rome, that the prevailing thought uh, from the people in Rome is that Paul, and really anyone who hadn't been there, it's like it, they, they did not come here because they overlooked it. They did not come here because we 
all didn't make the cut of the most influential and, and most important cities that a teacher would need to come visit. We're Rome. We're the best. We're the, we, we are the most important city that there is, right? That we are where the elites are, where the educated people are. So if you don't come to Rome, it's not because you overlooked it. It's not because, you know, it's because you, you don't think that what you're teaching can stand, stand up here, right? Again, we talked last week, Rome was the epicenter of the Roman Empire. So there's all of these sprawling lands and regions of civilizations that have been conquered by Rome and the people in Rome. So, you know, in their mind, it's like there's us, the rich, powerful, influential politicians, you know, rulers, and then there's them, the people we've conquered. So they're thinking, your gospel, Paul, might very well be good enough for them, the people that we've conquered, but it's not good enough for us here. It's not good enough for the philosophers and for the, 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 the intelligence, like the, the elite people that are here in, in Rome. Paul had an uphill battle everywhere he went preaching his gospel. We're going to see that. <clears throat> right, right. When he when he starts uh, in Israel, in the the Jewish synagogues in Israel, he he would he had an uphill battle already out of the gate. He'd come in and say, "Jewish people, right? I've got a new message for you uh, that that you." need to be reconciled to God. Your sin has separated you from God. The only way that you can be saved is if you trust in Christ who died for you to pay the penalty for your sin. And if you trust in him, he will save you and reconcile you to God forever. You're not saved by being a member of the nation of Israel. You're not saved by being a Jewish person. You're not saved by uh, obeying the law. You're not saved by offering sacrifices. You're saved by trusting in Jesus. And that message was not well received by many in the nation of Israel because they didn't like it. They didn't like the, they didn't like the implication that they didn't have the monopoly on or at least the inside track on God's favor, on God's salvation, right? This idea that, that salvation is equally available to anyone and everyone, the righteous, holy people in Israel and the wicked, you know, immoral pagan idolaters in all of the other nations that was a that was not a, a welcome message for the people in israel to hear so paul out of the gate had a, an uphill battle when he's preaching to the people in israel now you'd think that maybe it would he would be better received when he left israel and was preaching to gentiles and sometimes he was but a lot of times he wasn't because he would come to the gentiles and he would say an equally scandalous, equally offensive message to them, right? He would say, uh, all of the gods that you are worshiping are fake at best and demons at worst, right? Like all of the gods that you're worshiping, you need to throw all of your idols away. You need to stop worshiping all of those false gods. You need to worship the one true God, the God who created you, the God that you are accountable to, the God that you have offended with your sin, the God who has made a way for you to be saved by coming to you and dying in your place. And that, that would be just as offensive to them because they'd say, who do you think you are to tell me that I'm accountable to this God that you're talking about that I've never heard of and have no, re you know, like, uh, you know, what, th this idea that I am accountable to your God is ridiculous. This idea that the gods that I am worshiping and have been worshiping for my entire life, that they are false gods is ridiculous. At best, Paul, at best what we can offer you is that we will worship your God alongside 
all of the gods that we already worship, right? We'll add your God to the pantheon of, pantheon of gods that we worship. That was fairly commonplace uh, in, in the ancient world. Go ahead, hedge your bets. Worship our God, worship their God, sure. One of them's probably God. So let's worship all of them, and then hopefully along the way we will end up appeasing the one who actually can, can help us. So the God of Israel had a unique message where he said, you have to worship me, and you can't worship anyone else. If you worship me alongside any other God, you might as well not even worship me, because I am the only God, and I demand, I expect, I, uh, am, am, I deserve to be worshipped alone and not alongside other gods. And so... When Paul would preach to the Gentiles, it, would be, it was kind of a difficult message for some of them to hear. They didn't, it was kind of an uphill battle for Paul to communicate his message to them. And then specifically, when Paul would go to somewhere like Rome, he had another uphill battle with these guys because he's, you know, he's essentially telling them, I, the, the same message that I've preached to all of these other people that you think you're better than them all of these other people that you feel are beneath you, they, they can't hack it. They can't cut it. Uh, you know, intellectually and philosophically with you, I'm going to tell you the same exact message that I've been preaching to them. And they'd say, that's, you know, you need to give us, you, it's fine to preach the junior varsity gospel to all of those people that we've conquered that couldn't stand up to us. But for us, you need to preach the real, like real, you know, give us the, the, the real gospel that, that, you know, maybe the others could not keep up with. So Paul had an uphill battle no matter where he goes, and these verses here is him fighting that uphill battle, saying, I haven't not come to you because I'm afraid. I haven't not come to you because I'm ashamed. I haven't come to you, frankly, just because you're, you're out of the way. <laughs> right? He's like, I've, been, I've gone on three missionary journeys up until now. I've been busy planting churches, encouraging the churches that I've already planted, resourcing them, equipping them, putting out fires when they, when they come up. And on each trip I go on, I venture out a little bit further, right? If, if we kind of start in um, Israel, I venture out a little bit further west over to Macedonia and Crete, and then you're way over here in Rome, and so I'll have to venture out further from there to get to the end. I'll get there eventually. My, my, go, my goal and my hope and my plan is to make it to um, Rome, but the reason I haven't is not because I'm afraid. The reason I haven't is because I have to drive by a bunch of other churches that need my help on my way to get to you who also needs my, my help. So I'm coming. I'm praying for you, and I long to see you. And this is the reason why I long to see you. This is the reason why I am wanting to come to Rome, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So the reason why I want to come to Rome is so that I can encourage you and help you and be a blessing so that I can, uh, you know, teach you and, and offer you a new perspective and offer you a fresh uh, set of eyes to help you think through things, right? Paul recognizes that in order for someone to walk with Jesus and in order for them to persevere in their relationship with Jesus and to, to keep going and to endure through suffering and adversity and difficulty for the long haul, Paul recognizes that one of the most helpful and effective things to make that happen is other people. Other people who can 
come alongside you and encourage you and, and listen and, and care and ask meaningful questions about your life and about your soul, people who can speak into your life and, and encourage you to continue in areas where you're doing well and encourage you to repent in areas where you need to change, right? Paul's saying one of the best things that I can do, one of the best things that I can give you, the church in Rome, is the gift of my own presence, being there with you, opening the Bible, teaching you from it, worshiping with you, singing with you. I want to come. I want to help you. And I want to do it by being there and, and persevering with you so that I can help you persevere. But it's not just that I want to come so that I can impart some spiritual gift to you. <coughs> right? Like this, as if it's this one-way street, right? I'm there. I'm the smart one. I've got it all together. You have a lot that you need to learn from me, and there's nothing that I can learn from you, right? It's not this one-way, right? I want to come and impart a spiritual gift to you to strengthen you, but, verse 12, I also want us to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So my coming there means uh, I'm going to bring a spiritual gift to you and impart it to you. I'm going to teach you and help you. And I'm going to listen to you and learn from you and, and benefit from being around you. There's this, this bi-directional edification that Paul envisions in the church. So it's not, let me go to church so I can be blessed, so that I can be edified, so that I can be encouraged, and that's it. The vision is, we come together as a family, right? And as we do, there's this bi-directional exchange of, of encouragement. Each member comes with a particular set of needs and ways that he or she needs to be strengthened by the people of God. And each member comes with a particular set of abilities and aptitudes and ways that they can impart a spiritual gift or blessing to someone else. I'm afraid that this might be one of the ways in which the church in America in recent history is kind of, is just underdeveloped, right? Where, where we've kind of come up, come up short a little bit. A lot of churches that, that um, seek to professionalize the idea of ministry in the local church, and so they start to look more like a business or an organization uh, than, than a, a church. A lot of churches in America, right, that see, that see their ministry as a church as, right, in the same way that a, that a business would see their, right, like we, we've got a market, we've got a target demographic, and so like any good business, we want to maximize revenue and solidify customer loyalty and build market share. And so like any good business, we're going to, do some analysis and figure out what customers want. We're going to raise capital so that we can kind of build a scalable operation to give customers what they want. And then we're going to execute according to our analysis using the capital that we have, have raised to give customers what they want <coughs> and to build market share. So a lot of, that's how businesses operate. So a lot of churches have, have kind of started to operate in recent history. And of course, when you when you treat people like customers, when you treat people like it's, it's your job to deliver a product to them according to their liking so that they'll buy your product from you, 
It's no surprise that people start acting like customers. <coughs> and they start coming to church and thinking, what's in it for me? What can I get out of this experience? How can I be entertained? How can I be encouraged? How can I be, right? You've got a business. You're delivering a product. I'm a customer consuming that product. So what's in it for me when I come to, to church here? And that vision for ministry in the church is, is incompatible with Paul's vision for what the church is. He's saying, right, the church is not a, a business that offers a product with a one-way unilateral exchange of goods and services and, and information and edification. It's a family where we gather together and we are all bi-directionally encouraging one another and being encouraged by one another. The church is not made up of customers. The church is made up of um, participants, mem members of a family who have rights and privileges and responsibilities like any other member of any other family. They have responsibilities to God and they have responsibilities to, to one another. Friends, your job as a member of the church is not to, it's not to, to come to church and be encouraged. It is that. And so you have a responsibility to try and make that happen, but it's not just that, right? Your, your, your responsibility is not just to come here and try to be encouraged, but it's to come here and try to be encouraged and to come here and try to encourage someone else, right? Find another member of your church that you can encourage and that you can do some deliberate spiritual good in order to help them to follow Jesus. There's countless ways to do that in the local church, countless ways that you can seek to mutually encourage someone else in yours and their faith. Some way, countless ways that you can seek to impart some spiritual good to your fellow church members in order to strengthen them. Not the least of which, well, the first one is just the most obvious, just coming to church, being, being present, be, you know, faithfully leaning into the ministry of attendance, right? Being, you, you have no idea how encouraging it is to your fellow church members, not the least of which is me, Right? For, for you to be here, for you to be present here, for you to faithfully exercise the ministry of attendance. There's, there's an energy, there's a momentum that happens when people, uh, you know, come together, gather together. The more we do it, the better we do it. The more effective our gatherings will be at encouraging your fellow church members. So don't ever underestimate the importance of the ministry of attendance. But there's countless others, right? It could be not just showing up, but showing up on time or maybe a few minutes early so that you can find a need that you can meet or so that you can uh, encourage someone, find someone to talk to instead of kind of rushing in, you know, five minutes later or after the, the service uh, starts. There's another one. Uh, singing, right? Participating in the, 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 the event of congregational singing when we, when we gather together singing loud, singing passionately, right? Sing with the intention of having your voice be heard by other people in the room, right? Having your voice actually contribute to the song that we are singing together. Right, when you, when you sing, right, when you, when you sing loudly and you participate intentionally in the, the event of congregational singing, 
right? It, it, there, there's, it actually affects other people besides you, right? Our, our, our singing, when we, when we sing together, is not, you know, maybe we have this tendency, singing, right, when we come and we worship God, that's like, a, you know, kind of like a pitcher in baseball where you, like, zone everything out, you, you know, take dead aim on the catcher's mitt, you know, here, it's, it's just me and God, right? I'm just focusing on God, thinking about God, singing to God, and it's as if everyone else in the room is just not even here because I've just got this, like, that's not the Bible's vision for congregational singing, right? In Ephesians 5, Paul says, uh, I want you to address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So when you, when you come together as a church and you sing, you're not only singing vertically to God, but you're also singing horizontally to one another. We sing together, and the, and the goal is for each of us to be not just glorifying God with our voices when we're singing, which it is that, but also to encourage our fellow believers when we are singing. So now music takes on a, a new level of Right? Instead, instead of singing just being, I'm singing these words and I'm thinking about how these words uh, you know, speak to me and, and are relevant to me in my walk with God, I'm thinking, I'm a part of a family, I'm a part of a body, how do these words, right? when I'm singing, he will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me. On, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my hope, my strength, my cornerstone, my solid ground. He keeps me through the fiercest drought and storm. It's one thing to sing that. It's encouraging to sing that. And it's, it's significantly more encouraging to hear a church member sing that who just had a miscarriage or just buried, you know, just buried their parents, right, who's, who's going through uh, incredible pain and suffering, and when you hear them singing about persevering in the faith through the grace of God, that there's a collective, there's a, a synergistic effect where we are all more encouraged together than any one of us would be encouraged alone. You can come to church, you can speak, you can, you can stick, come on time, sing, you can stick around afterwards and ask people about the sermon. Ask, ask them about whether they, you know, what did they learn in it. Ask them about how their week has been. Ask them about how the Lord has been working in their life and how you can be praying for them. Take time to listen to what they're experiencing, right? Again, find a need to meet. Uh, do the, the dishes. Serve in the nursery. Ask Jesse to do the slides since he does them every, every week. Give him a, a break. There's countless ways that any of us can be serving and and mutually encouraging other people with our faith so that we might impart some spiritual gift to the rest of the people in our church. Church is not like going to a restaurant where you show up, sit down, order what you want. It's brought to you. You eat what you want. If it's not exactly what you want, you complain to the manager. And then you leave, and the busboy comes and takes all your dishes for you. That's not, that's not Paul's vision. Church, church is less like eating in a restaurant, and it's more like gathering together as a family around the family dinner table, right? So, so the family gathers together. Someone's been working all afternoon to prepare it. Someone else sets the table. Someone pours the drink. Someone prays for the meal. 
If the food is good, that's awesome. If it's mediocre, then you're still nice about it because they made it for you and you're glad that they did. After dinner, we all kind of pitch in and, you know, do the dishes together. Church is meant to be a family endeavor, a family meal together. We're not customers consuming a product. We are a family encouraging one another, strengthening one another, and imparting some spiritual gift to one another. This is actually, this is like a, a, a significant, this is a core implication of a, of a Reformation doctrine called the, the priesthood of all believers. All right, so, so um, one of the big distinctives of the Protestant Reformation, of which we are a part, is the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. So it means that all believers, all Christians are priests. We all are united to Christ, and we all share in uh, Christ's priestly status, his occupying the priestly office. There's no special class of people who mediate the knowledge or presence or forgiveness of Christ to the rest of believers. All believers have the same right and the same authority to read and interpret and apply the teachings of, of Scripture. It's the priesthood. So I'm a priest, not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a Christian. You are priests as well, right? You share in the priesthood of Christ along with me and, and every other believer because we're, we're Christians. And that, that doctrine, the priesthood of all believers, came about specifically as a reaction to some of the practices in the Roman Catholic Church at the time where you had a really sharp divide between the clergy and the, the laity, right? So before the Protestant Reformation, you had regular people, uneducated people. Most of them couldn't read. They had no way to know God, no way to cultivate their relationship with God. They were entirely and utterly dependent on a special class of, of elevated, elite, spiritual people who were going to do that for them, and they were the, the priests, and they were the ones who were educated. And to be honest, they kind of hoarded their education. They, they said, we want to have all of the education, and we don't want you to have any of it, so that you will be dependent on, right, we will administer the sacraments to you. Don't worry about reading your Bible. That's too difficult. Don't worry about praying. We will pray for you. Don't worry about trusting in Jesus. You don't even know what that means, right? Just let us do all the heavy lifting. Do what we say. Put the money in the box where we tell you everything will be fine, right? If you don't do what we say, the priests, the, the religious aristocracy, if you don't do what we say, you'll go to hell. And if you do what we say, you'll be fine which is icky, right? Like you feel icky hearing that even right, right now. And so Martin Luther comes along, and he says, the Bible doesn't teach any of this stuff, right? right? The, the, the Bible doesn't teach that there's a, a, a class of religious royalty who mediate the presence of God to other people as a way to consolidate their power to make sure that everyone has to do what they say and give them money. The Bible doesn't teach that people are reconciled to God because some special elite class of priests has declared them to be. The Bible teaches that people are reconciled to God when they trust in Jesus to save them. Right? All they need is for someone to explain the gospel to them. The person doesn't need to be a priest or a pastor. They just need to be a Christian. And then by virtue of being a Christian, that person now has direct access to God. They don't have to go through a, a priest or any other person. They can come directly to God through Christ. 
Every Christian has the right to read the Bible on their own, interpret the Bible on their own, apply the Bible on their own, right? Uh, Christians can pray to God on their own. They don't need a priest to do it for them. Christians can impart spiritual gifts to other Christians. It doesn't need to all be done by a, a priest. Christians can encourage other believers in their faith. It doesn't need to be all done to be done by the priest. First Peter chapter two says, "You, all believers, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people called for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out, out of darkness into His marvelous light." It's a key tenet of the Protestant Reformation is that all Christians are priests, all Christians can read their Bible, all Christians can do meaningful, effective ministry in the body of Christ. It's not reserved for the religious uh, elites or people who are on staff. So if you, hear, if you hear someone say, I'm a Christian, but I don't really like to share my faith. That's my pastor's job, and I'll leave that to him. Or I'm a Christian, but... I don't consider it my job to, to do ministry in the church. That's the, there's people on staff that can handle that. I come to church to be edified, and it's the job of the pastor and the staff to encourage and edify me. That's not a Protestant understanding of the Christian life, and it's not a biblical understanding of the Christian life. Romans 12, in Christ we are one body, we are each members of that body, we've each been given gifts by God. If the gift that you've been given is prophecy, then prophesy. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encouragement, then encourage. If it's giving, then give. If it's leading, then lead. If it's mercy, then show mercy. Paul's saying, I am coming so that I can impart a spiritual gift to you, but it's not my job alone to impart spiritual gifts. It's all of our jobs together to mutually encourage one another with our faith, yours and, and mine. Verse 13, I do not want you to be aware, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. So he's reiterating what he just said in verse 11, which is that I want to come to Rome. I'm not a, afraid to come to Rome. I'm not avoiding it. I'm not ashamed of the, right? He, we're going to study that in, in uh, detail next week. Verse 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So, so the reason I haven't come is not because I'm ashamed very important to you. I don't want you to be unaware. It's very important for me to know that you are aware that I have intended to come to you, right? My reason for not coming is not lack of intention, lack of desire. It's because God has providentially hindered me from doing so. God is the one who's in, in charge. God is the one who tells me where to go. God directs my path. He's kept me from coming to you at this point, but I'm hoping and praying that that will change Soon. And the reason why, the reason why I'm hoping and praying that I can come to you is not only that we can, that I can impart a spiritual gift and we can be of mutual encouragement to each other, like in verses 11 and 12, but it's also so that I may reap some harvest among you <coughs> as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So the reason I want to come to you is so that I can proclaim the gospel and, and by God's grace, uh, so that we might see people come to faith in Christ, right? Jesus says in Luke 10, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the fields so that they can proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Paul says, my hope and my prayer is that God will use me 
to accomplish what Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 10, that, that, we, that I might reap a harvest among the Gentiles, among the people in Rome, right? That, that uh, there might be a harvest of believers who grow in their faith, a harvest of believers who come to know Christ by my visiting Rome. Verse 14, because I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So this is another part of the reason why Paul hasn't been there yet. He said, I'm not just under obligation to you, the Greco-Roman elites in Rome. I also am under obligation to the barbarians. I'm not just under obligation to you, the wise. I'm also under obligation to the foolish. It doesn't mean I owe you money. He means I ha- like God, I, God has called me, God has sent me, and I am obligated to obey God. I have a mission that was given to me by God to proclaim the gospel to the Greeks. So, like he says elsewhere, right, I'm, you know, called to pre- preach to the, the Jews and to the Gentiles, so the nation of Israel and the whole world. But within the category of the whole world, of the Gentiles, there's the Greeks, people who, have, people who speak Greek, people who are, you know, familiar with Greek culture, Greek gods, Greek art and philosophy, and then there's everyone else, right? Foreigners, outsiders, hicks, rednecks, right? Uh, savages. The word barbarian, so the, the, word, the word barbarian actually comes from uh, almost like a racial slur that was spoken in Greece. So imagine, I'm not going to do it because I don't want anyone to, you know, I don't want to get canceled, but imagine in your head like the worst most stereotypical making fun of someone who maybe English is their second language, right? You know, some, some, uh, when, if you, so I went, I traveled to China and they have that for, um, for Americans, for English speakers. And it, there, there are a lot more S's in the English language than there are in the Chinese language. So if you ask a Chinese person who doesn't speak English, what does an English person sound like to you? They'll say, you know, it's like a lot of, it's all S's, just e- a bunch of S's with different vowels in them. That's what they think English sounds like because they hear in their brain so many S's that they're not used to hearing. And so they'll say that almost like derogatorily. Like if you come, if you go to China and you try to speak Chinese or you, you're speaking English to, English to your friend, they'll kind of think, they'll, they'll you know, kind of mock you derogatorily. East, ice, os, 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 whatever. Well, that's what, that's what the Greeks did to everyone that didn't speak Greek because uh, the language was a lot rougher, a lot kind of tough, and it had a lot of like bear, bar, boar, bear. That that syllable was a lot more prominent in non-Greek languages than in Greek. So they'd make fun of it, and they'd call people who didn't speak Greek barbarians. Like they just, all they say is bar all the time, which eventually, you know, came to mean barbarians, which then kind of bundled in connotations of being primitive and savage and unrefined and uneducated. They're barbarians. So Paul is saying, I am not only under obligation to you, the Greeks, to you, the wise, I'm also under obligation to the barbarians and the foolish. So don't sit there and think, why hasn't Paul come to us? Oh, Paul must be ashamed of the gospel, and that's why he hasn't come to us. I haven't come to you because I have an obligation to the barbarians. I have an obligation to the foolish. The the uneducated people that you've conquered, I have an obligation to them to see that they can hear the gospel and have an opportunity to repent and respond to the gospel as well, right? 
So just like the Jewish elites thought we should have the monopoly on salvation, and the idea of, of the gospel being preached, preached to the Gentiles is offensive, so too the Greco-Roman elites thought we should have a monopoly on the, all of the intellectual, philosophical ideas in the world, and no one else should be able to, to hear those. And Paul says, nope, uh, the, the gospel is for Jews and Gentiles. The gospel is for Greeks and barbarians. Anyone and everyone can trust in Christ. And my job is to see to it that anyone and everyone has an opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel. And in verse 15, he says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you, who also, to you also who are in Rome. Right? So the gospel is not just for the nation of Israel. The gospel is not just for the, the, the barbarians that are in Macedonia and everywhere else. The gospel is also for you, the people who are there in the church uh, in, in Rome. God created everyone. God uh, has authority over everyone. God is extending a bona fide opportunity to everyone to repent of their sin and to come to him and to trust in, in Jesus. So I'm not coming... I'm not coming to Rome because Rome is better than anywhere else. I'm not coming to Rome because the city of Rome is more deserving than anyone else. I'm not coming to Rome because it's the epicenter of Greco-Roman life. It's the hub where all the rich and powerful people are, where the smart and wise people are. It's not why I'm coming to Rome. I'm coming to Rome because God has called me to preach the gospel. God has called me to, to go and gather a harvest of people in the city of Rome who trust in Christ. God has called me to gather a harvest of people who are trusting in Christ and need to grow in their faith and be encouraged. I'm eager to come to Rome because, verses 8 through 10, your reputation precedes you. I'm encouraged by it. Everyone everywhere is talking about the, the church in Rome, right? These guys who believe the gospel, this church that's thriving, right? Listen to what's going on in, in the, the church in Rome. If you have a chance, you should go visit them, right? I'm eager to come to visit you because I'm encouraged by what I'm hearing about you. Verse 11, I'm eager to come to Rome because I want to impart a spiritual gift to you, right? I'm an apostle. I have the authority to speak encouraging, spiritually encouraging words to you and to invite you to trust in, in Christ. Maybe I can help address some of your issues and your questions and your disputes. Verse 12, I'm eager to come to Rome because I want us to all be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. It's not just me, Paul, the professional Christian whose job it is is to bless you, the, the, the masses. No, rather it's we're a family, we gather together and all of our jobs, all of our responsibilities is to encourage one another. And then finally, I'm eager to come to Rome because, verses 13 to 15, I want people in Rome, really I want people in all the world to hear the gospel, to come to know Christ, right? right? God has, has called me to proclaim the gospel to all the world, to anyone and everyone, and I am going to devote the rest of my life to doing just that. Friends, let's be, a, let's be a church that embodies 
these ideals. A church that seeks to mutually encourage one another with our faith, a church that seeks to impart spiritual gifts to one another and to strengthen one another, a church that seeks to do deliberate spiritual good to one another, to help one another follow Jesus, a church that seeks to proclaim the gospel boldly to a world that needs to hear it so that people can trust in Christ and be reconciled to God through the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that the gospel is for everyone. That it's not just for the the moral religious elites in the nation of Israel. It's not just for the intellectual, philosophical elites in the city of Rome, but the gospel is for everyone. We thank you that you've given us the privilege of hearing the gospel, responding to the gospel, trusting in Christ through the gospel. And Lord, we pray that we could respond by leaning in, encouraging one another, rejoicing with one another, mourning with one another, bearing one another's burdens. Lord, we pray that you would help us to uh, be faithful to proclaim the gospel and, uh, and reap a spiritual harvest in the places where you have called us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.